Well, I'm going to share some thoughts with you uh, from a series that we're going to wrap up today uh, entitled, Jesus Did What? And we've been looking at extraordinary lessons from no ordinary life. And over the past several weeks, you know, we, we talked about how Jesus used his saliva to heal on three different occasions and how does that apply to our lives? You know, we, we talked about how at times it, it seemed as though Jesus would show up late on purpose. What does that mean in our lives? Or at times it seemed as though Jesus was wasteful, right? Extravagant in his giving. And we, we looked into that. And, and we looked at how at times it seemed as though Jesus was intentionally offensive. He would say offensive things. And how does that apply to us as, as Christ followers? And, and really, our, our primary text for this series is 1 John 2, 6. And I'd like for us for the last time, because we're going to wrap up the series today, I would like for us to read this verse out loud together. Here we go. Anyone who says he is a Christian should live as Christ did. Now leave that verse up there for a moment. I mean, no, that's a tall order. That if you call yourself a Christian, then you should live as Jesus lived. Imagine if you were a musician just starting out and somebody said, okay, now you need to be like Beethoven. Yeah, right. Or if you were a painter and you just started out painting and somebody said, now you need to be like Michelangelo. Well, when you become a Christian and then the Bible tells us that he's now our, not only our example, but our enabler, and now we're to live like Jesus, we're thinking, really? Living like Christ isn't easy, but that's the goal. As Christians, we strive to become more like Christ. So Jesus did what on Palm Sunday? Jesus teaches us a powerful lesson on humility. Because on Palm Sunday, Jesus did what? He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. You see, Jesus loved the underdog. And an underdog is an underdog for a reason, because they're smaller, they're weaker, and seriously lacking in the advantage category in life. And of all the animals that God created, you know, the, the donkey is the underdog. Uh, the donkey is, cannot even begin to be compared to the racehorse or the war horse, you know, or the show horse. Well, the donkey is just that. It's a donkey. And yet something significant occurred. 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, Jesus riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. Matter of fact, hundreds of years prior to this moment, the first Palm Sunday, it was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says, everyone in Jerusalem, celebrate and shout. Your king is one of victory, and he's coming to you. He is humble. Everybody say humble. Or humble, as some people say. Either way is good. He's humble. Notice that. Jesus, the Lord and God, Christ, Savior of the world, he's humble. And he rides on a donkey. He comes on the colt of a donkey. Imagine on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus strolling into Jerusalem, palm branches, people shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The 12 apostles... You know, strolling in behind Jesus, riding on that donkey. I mean, oh, the donkey was the Uber of Jesus' day. <laughs> and this happened to be a borrowed donkey. A borrowed donkey. This is the most honored donkey of all time that was ever created. I hope after Palm Sunday, after that day, I hope no man ever sat upon that donkey again. How can any other common man sit upon that donkey after Jesus rode that donkey? I hope that donkey was, 
was inducted into the Donkey Hall of Fame for all of time. Because this donkey was created and had this incredible assignment, was the one that would carry the King of Glory into the, his city, the city of Jerusalem. Now we know the significance of that because in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, when King David was about to die and he needed to uh, set up and, es and establish his son Solomon as the next king, he told his officials, place my son Solomon on my mule and take him throughout the city and make the declaration, behold your king. You see, when a king would come into a city riding a charger or a stallion, it was a declaration of war. And Jesus, when he comes back a second time without sin and to salvation, the book of Revelation tells us he will be upon a white horse and he comes back to declare war. But when a king would ride into a city on a donkey, it was a sign of peace, a sign of humility. And really, Palm Sunday, I believe, is a, a lesson on humility. Because Jesus did what? He loved the underdog. And when it came to the animal kingdom, the greatest of underdogs was the donkey. It's also amazing how Jesus, his life, intertwined with animals, a part of God's creation. Think of it. Jesus was born where? In a stable with animals, Luke chapter 2, verse 7 tells us. In Scripture, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. In, 1 John, in John 1, 29, he's compared to a lamb. He's also compared to a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. When Jesus was water baptized, by the way, for those that are about to be water baptized, he himself was water baptized by John in the Jordan River, his cousin. And when he came up out of the water, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord descended upon him like a dove. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit in Scripture is compared to a dove. And a dove, what are doves? They, they're pigeons. They're common, messy birds. But they're the symbol, a dove of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in one of his sermons, spoke of not one sparrow falls to the ground without the Father who created them noticing it. Wow. Jesus also identified uh, his ministry with animals, his traveling ministry. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie his head. At the start of Jesus' ministry, he actually goes uh, into the wilderness, and it says that he stayed among the wild beasts in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. And then we know in Matthew 26, 26, that Jesus himself, before he would consume food, he would bless it. Why do we bless our food before we consume it? Well, first of all, to give thanks to God that through his, by his hand, he's made provision for us to have sustenance in life. But we also thank God because he created the animals, and an animal had to die in order to sustain our life. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. And what can we learn from that lesson? What can we learn from a donkey? There are things that we can learn even, yes, from a donkey, that this donkey made itself available for the Lord. How about you? How about me? I know you look a lot smarter than a donkey does. So if an old donkey can accept its assignment, its calling in life to carry Jesus into Jerusalem, we can accept our assignment in life to make Christ known in our generation. You see, the stubbornness of the donkey was tamed while the Lord held its reins. And the stubbornness in your life and the stubbornness in my life is tamed as we allow the Lord to hold the reins.
of our life. A true story happened many, 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 many years ago, but in the Holy Land, there were some, some smugglers, robbers, and they were, they were stealing, and they were, they were using a cart pulled by donkeys to get away with their loot. Well, one, one Jerusalem police officer knew his Bible well, and on one particular heist, the bad guys got away, but they left behind their cart and their donkeys. So this police officer, he starved the donkeys for three days, and his fellow officers were saying, why are you doing this? Well, he knew his Bible. He knew that when he would release those donkeys, they would lead the police back to the thieves because they would go back to their master to be fed. You see, it says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, the ox knoweth his owner and the donkey his master's crib. Sometimes in life, I believe God allows us to reach a place of emotional and spiritual and maybe physical hunger. And that is by, by way of God's grace to remind us that we have a master. That's what happened to the prodigal son when he was living in sin. He finally came to his senses. The longing of his heart finally came to the service and he realized, what am I doing with my life? I am wasting my life away. And he made his way back to the father's house. What lesson can we learn from this first underdog, the underdog of a donkey, is to accept the Lord's assignment for our life and to know our way back to our creator, to our owner, and to our master. Jesus loved the underdog. You know, when I first started reading scripture 37 years ago, when I was lost in sin and, un and, and not saved, my sister bought me a Bible and I started reading it. I remember when I read through the gospel, something struck me. As a, as a young teenager, something struck me. How Jesus treated women. Never in history... Was there someone, particularly a man, that treated women with more respect and honor and value than Jesus? It's interesting how Jesus related to women. At the very time of Christ, the very time when Jesus lived, during his time, women, according to Jewish law and customs, women were confined to, domestic, to the domestic scene. A woman was exempt from the commandments of requiring attendance at public religious ceremonies and duties such as the study of the law and of the Torah, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and, and reading from the, the law of God in the synagogue. Women were precluded from that. Schools were for boys, not for girls. And in the synagogue, women would sit apart from the men. Matter of fact, in the New Testament church, because culture and the customs were so powerful and strong, that's the way it was initially in the New Testament church. You had the women sitting on one side and the men sitting on the other side. And so Paul gave instruction that women shouldn't ask their husbands a question in church. They should remain silent by virtue of the fact they were seated apart from one another and it could create confusion. In the temple, Solomon's temple, rebuilt by Herod, the, the place of worship for the Jewish people, women were confined to two areas in the temple, the court of women and the court of Gentiles. They could not move freely throughout the temple as the men could, and yet... When Rabbi Yeshua shows up, our Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he enjoyed the company of women. The Bible tells us that it was actually wealthy women that followed him in his ministry and financially supported his ministry. And how Jesus treated women, unheard of in his day. He conversed on one occasion with a Samaritan woman at a well, just Jesus and that woman. The disciples were on an errand to fix up some food. And when they came back and they saw Jesus speaking to this woman, they were shocked. They were 
taken back. They thought, whoa, what's Rabbi doing talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that by himself? Scandalous. But no one dared ask Jesus what he was up to. We all know what he was up to. He valued this woman who kept coming to the same well for water. And he says, I'll give you water that if you'll take the water that I'll offer you, you'll never thirst again. Jesus is the first one in antiquity to address man's wandering eye and how men would objectify women as a sexual object. Because Jesus himself, in his own Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, he said, if you look at a woman to lust, you've already, already committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus was the first person to ever, ever address that. Jesus showed compassion. He offered forgiveness to prostitutes and women caught in the very act of adultery. On one occasion, Jesus was reclining with other men and they were speaking of the, of the Torah, of the holy law of God. And a sex worker barged in, fell at the feet of Jesus. She began to weep and with her tears wash his feet, with her hair dry his feet, and she began to kiss his feet. And Jesus offered that woman forgiveness. And many of the religious spirited people in the, in the room that day, the men were, 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 were offended by that. And they thought to themselves, if he were a prophet, he would know what type of woman this was. And Jesus told a story of two individuals, one that owed a lot of money and one that owed hardly any money. But the king forgave the debt of both. He said, which one do you think would be more appreciative, more thankful? And they said, well, the one that owed the most. He said, correct. This woman, her sins were many, but her love is, is also great. Her sins were great, but her love was great compared to you. Those that were in that table, those that were reclining with Christ at that table that day. Jesus, he always loved the underdog. You know, it was a sin to teach the Torah to women, and, and yet he allowed Mary to sit at his feet and be taught the Holy Scriptures. That's what really disrupted Martha that day in that story of Martha and Mary when she was preparing the meal. The fact that Mary had the audacity to sit as the men would sit to hear and to be spoken about concerning the law of God. And then the final example of Jesus loving the underdog because in the time of Christ, women were the underdogs. When he hung on that cross, one of the very last statements that came out of his mouth was that he wanted to make sure he took care of his mother. And he looked at John. He said, John, behold your mother. And he said, woman, behold your son. You see, because every man knows it's his responsibility take care of his mother. It's every man's responsibility to be like Christ and to take care of your mother, take care of your wife, take care of your daughters, take care of your granddaughters. And if you no longer have a mother, or if you, and if you, don't, if you don't have a wife, and if, if you don't have a daughter, God expects every man to be like Jesus and show honor and respect to all women. They're a special creation of God. I know we live in a time where there is a spirit of harlotry in our world, a spirit of Delilah and a spirit of Jezebel. And I know there are some really evil women that use their sexual prowess to beguile, deceive, and seduce and corrupt the hearts of men. But God still requires men to show honor and respect to all women. Because really, at the end of the day, women are the most special creatures that God created. They're not angels. We're humans. We, not angels, were created in the image and likeness of God. But we all know how men were created. 
from the mud, from the dirt. That's why it's expected for a man to be dirty, but not for a woman to be dirty. A woman was created from man's side. Amen. Jesus took care of his mother. If Jesus valued women, if Jesus loved the underdog, so should we as men. You know, in a survey of 192 countries, it's been demonstrated scientifically now, what we've known anecdotally, Christian women are more religious than Christian men. In the United States, for example, women are more likely than men to say religion is very important in their lives. 60% of women versus 47%. According to the 2014 Pew Research Center survey, American women also are more likely than American men to, stay, to say that they pray daily. 64% versus 47%. And attend religious services at least once a week, 40 to 32%. According to media accounts, women so outnumber men in the pews of many U.S. churches that some clergy have changed decor, music, and worship styles to try to bring more men into the house of God. I thank God that Trinity is a church filled with men that love God and love Jesus. Jesus loved the underdog. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. He treated all women with value and with respect and with dignity. And then Jesus always closed the gap between himself and children. It's amazing, once again, 2,000 years ago, how Jesus treated children. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Some reason the kids wanted to be around Jesus. That says a lot about our Savior. And the disciples and the religious spirit of that day would say, church isn't for kids, or keep the kids away from Jesus. He said, hey, 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 stop that. Let the little children come unto me. And one of the most beautiful signs, one of the most beautiful expressions of God's love for children in the Bible is that Jesus would lay his hands on the children and pray for them, speak a blessing over them. In the time of Christ, children up until the age of, of five, they were associated with disease and death. Ooh, get that kid away from me. I might, I might catch something. Did you know it was the practice of the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans, if you didn't want your child, you just threw it away. You literally left it on the side of the road. And you know what Christians did? It's documented historically. They would go and they would pick up those unwanted children and bring them into their homes and love them as their own, adopt them, and raise them up to love Jesus. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Consider, consider this radical thought. God was once a kid. Jesus was a baby born in a manger. He was a toddler. He had to learn how to God, in human form, had to learn how to walk. He had to be loved and cared for by Joseph and by Mary until he came of age. At 12, he, was all, he already knew the Torah. He already knew the law. He was already debating with the theologians in the temple at the age of 12. At the age of 30, he enters into full-time ministry. Let the little children come unto me. One of the most beautiful scenes in the Bible was after Mary was became pregnant with the Savior of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit a miraculous conception she went to go tell her cousin Elizabeth who, had, who was already six months pregnant with John the Baptist and when Mary announced to Elizabeth that she was with child you know you know you remember what happened 
John the Baptist, the babe inside of Elizabeth, leaped for joy. Life begins at conception, and a baby can respond to joy in its mother's womb. Come on, somebody. Can we thank God for the miracle of life? Look at what Jesus said about children in Matthew 18, verse 10. Unheard of for a rabbi of his day. I'm reminding you. Jesus loved the underdog. Take heed that you do not despise. Stop there. Jesus, the authority of all authorities, is telling us don't despise children. We live in a society, we live in a culture that despises children, this jet-set lifestyle. Me first. Me, myself, and I. I don't have time for children. We live in a society and a culture that despises these little ones. And yet, the Savior said, take heed that you do not despise, which means don't regard children as nothing. Don't disesteem them. Because one of these little ones, for I say that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's where we get children are assigned a guardian angel, right there from the highest of authorities, Jesus Christ. You know, the three people that Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus was the only adult. The other one was the widow's son of Nain and Jairus' daughter, who was 12. One day the apostles were all debating, who's the greatest, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? And Jesus said, stop. And he grabbed a child and he set a child in the midst of them. He said, unless you be converted and become like this child, you will not enter my father's kingdom. What a stern warning. Jesus was telling us that we need to be childlike, not childish, but childlike. And what's a child like? A child is fun-loving. A child may have a bad moment, but rarely has a bad day. Child doesn't hold a grudge for 50 years. Hello, don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good on this Palm Sunday. Amen. Children. Children. The sincerity of a child. That's the example of what it means to follow Christ. Jesus was a defender and a protector and a promoter of children. What's the lesson that we can learn? To be unpretentious and to be sincere as children are. But also this. My wife and I, Gloria and I, we've had the privilege to raise two boys, and now they're grown men. Uh, but our kids, they had the privilege of experiencing something that many of us didn't have the privilege of experiencing, to be raised in a bona fide Christian home. Not a perfect home. We're not perfect parents. We don't have a perfect marriage. But a home that welcomed Jesus, and a home that loved Jesus, and a home where Dad said... Every Sunday, we're going to be in the house of God. You're like, well, you work at the house of God. I know. <laughs> That's no excuse for you. Whether I work there or not, we were going to be in the house of God. We made God a priority in our home. We made Jesus a priority in their upbringing, a priority in their education. We did all that we could do with what God had entrusted us with to give our sons the best chance they have to succeed in life. Now I told my oldest boy when he moved to Denver, I said, you're on your own now, boy. If you fail, it's on you. I hope you don't. I, I believe you're going to succeed. But if you do, it ain't my fault. We did everything we could to lay the foundation for you to be successful in every area of your life. All the years our kids grew up in our home, they never once had to doubt, well, there'll be food on the table. They never once had to doubt, will there be a roof over our head? They never once had 
to stay up all night worrying about those things because mom and dad did it for him. Amen. Sometimes mom and dad, you know, we're not supposed to worry, but sometimes we're like, okay, it's getting close, right? Thank God for 49-cent cheeseburgers at Burger King. <laughs> but our kids knew. We'd always love them, protect them, and be there for them. Hey, that's a lesson we can learn. We all have a loving Heavenly Father, and He's there to provide for you, to protect you, to defend you. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And He does. Jesus loved the underdog. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. He treated women with value and respect and dignity. He loved children, and finally, Jesus loved the underdog. He loved the slaves. Slavery has been a problem in this world and an evil in this world ever since the fall of man. It'll never be eradicated until the Prince of Peace comes, the King of Glory comes. And it can only be solved in the hearts of men and women who surrender their lives to Jesus, understanding that all men and women are created in the image and likeness of God. But Jesus never directly spoke out against slavery. Interesting. He did something better. It would have been so easy to, to confront that evil head on, but sometimes you have to do an end around. Jesus came into this world identifying as a slave. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. It says, Yet... It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your, what's that next word? Servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your, what? Slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he self-identified as a servant, unheard of scandalous of his day. Here is the king of glory. That's who Jesus is. The eternal son of God. As God the son, he never had a beginning. He, he's always pre-existed, always been a part of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God manifest in three distinct persons of the Holy Trinity. That's what we as Christians, Catholics, that's what we believe that's what Scripture teaches. That's what the early church fathers believed. That's what Paul and the apostles believed. Yet Jesus was willing, Christ was willing to humble himself and come to the earth in the form of a man. That's the greatest emotion in all of eternity. Think about that for a moment. You've existed throughout all eternity as the second member of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, seated upon a throne forever and ever, throughout all eternity. You are the one that actually created all things. God the Father, through the Son, created all things. Colossians 1, Paul tells us that. And yet, by an act of his own will, this is what Paul taught us in Philippians 2, he volunteered to become a man. And once God became a man, he would never be divorced from that human flesh again. He would forever be God and man. 
God 100%, yes, but man 100%, yes, yet without sin because we know when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, anytime a child is conceived, the blood comes from the Father. So the blood of Adam didn't, didn't flow through the veins of Jesus. The very blood of God flowed through his veins. So he was the only one that came to this world without sin, Jesus. And yet he was willing to leave heaven, take off his crown, take off his robe, take, lay down the scepter, jump off his throne and come to the earth and be born as a man in a manger. Humble beginnings, I would say. And he did it voluntarily. Hey, a point of comparison. Might, might be a crude example, but a point of comparison. Would you be willing to leave your status as a man or a woman and be born as a donkey? Yeah, that's a whole other nature that you would be taking on. That's what God did when he became a man and clothed himself. Paul said it this way. No one can top Paul. Look at Philippians 2, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Look what it says. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. No, what did he do? Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God had elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Paul goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul uses a fancy Greek word to describe this incredible theme and thought in Philippians 2. It's kenosis. The Greek word kenosis and it means the renunciation of divine privileges at least in part by Christ in the incarnation. Please understand this very clear theological distinction. It's th this all heresy begins and ends right here. Very fine line. Jesus becoming man, he never ceased being God. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't forfeit being God to become man. No, it's the mystery of the incarnation is that though he was God, yet he was man. He gave up the privileges and the rights and the perks of being God. And he had to live as a man. He needed food, he needed water, he needed sleep, he felt pain. He was every bit human as you and I are, yet without sin. The perfect Savior. He could grab the hand of God, the Father, because he was God the Son. He could grab the hand of man because he was man. And he can unite us at the cross. Kenosis. He willingly emptied himself and humbled himself. And therefore God has honored him. That's the lesson this Palm Sunday, a lesson of humility, a lesson I know I need to learn every day over and over again, and I know you need to learn it every day over and over again. Sometimes it's so easy to be full of ourselves. It's so easy to get our eyes off of God and our eyes off of others and keep our eyes on us. The old acronym for joy is truth, J-O-Y. If you want to have joy, it's Jesus first, others, and then you. If you invert it, if you put you first and, and God and others last in your life, you will forever be unhappy. Jesus leaves us the example of kenosis, 
this Palm Sunday? Do you and I love the underdog? Do you and I celebrate the underdog? Do you and I believe in the underdog? And do you and I identify with being a servant? You see, in your marriage, you're to have a servant heart of leadership. In church, you're to come with a servant heart of leadership. At work, you're to come with a servant heart of leadership, not a serpent's heart, but a servant's heart. The world has enough serpent-hearted people. We need servant-hearted people who do what they do as unto the Lord and not unto men, for that's what Jesus did for the love of the Father. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we just thank you for today, this incredible Palm Sunday service that we get to be a part of. Thank you, Lord, that all of us are here. Those that couldn't be here are watching. Thank you that the Spirit of the Lord is moving now, and you're speaking to heart, the hearts of men and women. And the most important prayer you could pray right now is this, Lord, what would you have me to do with this message? What are you speaking to me concerning my life today regarding this message? Do I have a servant's heart? Do I love the underdog? Do I value women? Do I celebrate children? And am I going through life not as a king entitled, but as a servant empowered to serve and love others? God, speak to us. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Let's thank the Lord together. Can we do that?